Good morning. Thank you, Elsie and James. That was awesome. Can we say, I love you, Elsie? Love you, Elsie. <laughs> we appreciate that. So, why don't we take a moment? We're going to take a moment and we're going to pray. And then we're going to see what the Lord has for us in the book of John. Let's just take a moment and pray and let's just be silent before the Lord. We'll give us a, I'll give us a few moments to be silent. And uh, you can meditate on a scripture that he may have put on your, on your heart. You can meditate. If you're, if, you're, um, if you're sitting at home and you're able to look out the window and you see a nice peaceful scene of, of snow, you can be grateful in your heart for what he's given you. You can think of something you're grateful for. You can think of some reason that you have to worship him. Um, in Psalm 97, I'll give you one little tidbit here that maybe you can think on while, you're, while we're seeking his face. It says, Psalm 97, uh, verse 6, The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. So let's just seek the Lord together in silence for a few moments. Father, it is good for us to come before you. It is good for us to order our hearts before you. It is good to seek your face. It is good to recognize that you are seated in heaven in righteousness. It's good for us to see your righteousness and your glory in our hearts. And we worship you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you for the many blessings you give us, Lord. We thank you for the challenges that you put in our, in our life. We thank you for a chance to hear your word. We thank you for a chance for fellowship. We thank you for the opportunity to serve you. We thank you for our, our families that we're, we're surrounded by, whether here in the building or at home. Thank you for our church family that we can be connected to through technology. We're so grateful, Lord, that you've provided a means for us to stay connected with one another. Just lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. Welcome to Oak Ridge Community Church. Welcome if you're here with us in the building. Welcome if you're listening to us through Zoom. Welcome if you're listening to this um, teaching in the future as you've clicked on our message archive, which is very handily found under messages at oakridgecc.org. Um, I trust that you're staying well in the midst of the cold and the snow and the COVID. Just a quick reminder. I'm curious if, or if you might be aware of any needs of the people around you, people in, your, people in your life, friends, family, neighbors. I know there's an older woman in our court, lives in our court. Definitely not a good idea for her to get out and be walking in the snow and the ice and me and the kids help her out with little small things like grabbing her mail or scraping a little bit of snow off her walkway or her driveway. Small acts of kindness can go a long way. So I encourage you, be mindful of what's going on in the lives of the people around you and look for small practical things to do to serve them in the name of the Lord. You never know when you might earn an opportunity to serve them, to love them, to share God's word with them. And times like this in the middle of the snow is very practical things that we can do. So we're in the midst of a sermon series called The Red Letter Promises of Jesus, as uh, revealed in the New Testament book of John. This study is an opportunity for us to meditate on the words of Jesus. In a brief review, we've covered three, three topics so far. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Uh, he said, I'm the giver of living water. 
And last week, Tier Scowl shared with us where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. This entire series overview from beginning to end, it'll take us up to Easter, can be found in the ACE each week. If you look, you'll see the topics for the messages that we have outlined. Um, So I encourage you to check out the ACE. Give us any suggestions or feedback you might have throughout the week. Today, we're going to focus on Jesus' role as a compassionate judge. We'll examine some, some of the secular, we're going to look at his role as a compassionate judge. We're going to examine some of the secular attitudes towards the, towards the idea of judgment and what the culture thinks of that. We're going to look at how Jesus exercised his authority as a judge. And we're going to take a look at some of the practical things that we can and should do as his followers as we interact with the culture and the world around us. So, the judge is not, who does not condemn, the compassionate judge, what does that phrase mean? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Wasn't Jesus in a position of authority? Does he judge? How should we exercise judgment? I hope to answer these questions by the end of our time together this morning. But before we dive into the subject passage, I'd like to share a bit of a spoiler and then identify some tension that we need to address before we, before we look at the entire passage. So, Let's read um, John chapter 8, verses, verses 10 and 11. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Feel free to open your Bible or uh, scan on your phone. Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. So, pop quiz, who's the woman? She's the adulterer, right. So who are her accusers? Scribes, Pharisees, religious authorities, exactly. So the question here is, so G, this woman was drugged in front of Jesus, and she was accused, and Jesus interacted with them. We're going to look at this in more detail in a little bit. And the, spoiler alert, Jesus doesn't condemn her, but sends her on her way. So is, is Jesus refusing to judge her? That's the, one of the questions I want you to ask today. Some might say yes, and it's an important question. The tension is this. How would you explain a passage like this to your friends? Especially a friend of yours who may not be comfortable with the idea of judgment. I think before we can resolve this tension, it's worth taking a few minutes to engage with some cultural attitudes towards judgment. What does the world say about judgment? I've got a couple of quotes that I found. This is the cultural perspective. You never really understand what a person go, until, understand a person until you consider from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. That's Atticus Finch in the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Never understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. Okay? Cultural perspective. Morality is not a set of rules to obey. Morality is an art. Arts cannot be reduced to rules and absolutes that can be weaponized to attack others. Catherine Wallace, Christian humanist. There's a, there's a mindful and a heartful. Cultural perspective. This is the skeptic's favorite verse in the Bible, maybe. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 Verse 1. And you know what? To be honest, you can find a zillion other quotes to this effect. The, the idea of judgment and how we evaluate and interact with other people may be a frequent topic of conversation. 
you should eagerly engage in this conversation. It might be tough. It might be something that's difficult. It might be like, man, I hope I don't want to talk about that. I'd like to encourage you to think differently. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed to engage in a conversation like this, which is difficult. You have the resources of God's Word. You've got the resources of the Holy Spirit that dwell within you. You have the resources of friends and people that can encourage you to help you engage with a world that desperately needs to understand who God is and why He's made such an amazing impact in your life. You know, if we're honest, even though these state, we read these statements and we can think of things we don't agree about them, that there's honest, there's something in these statements that strikes a chord in us. We hear echoes of truth. We find ourselves wanting to agree. And to be clear, without an anchor in the Word of God, it's easy for us to be bent to what the culture is saying. And it's tempting for me, as tempting as it is for me to take, take a look at these things and pick them apart piece by piece, that's not a fruitful approach. It's not a fruitful approach for me to start a fight and pick a fight, but more fruitful is for me to understand truth and find a loving way to engage a sentiment that dominates our society. And that sentiment is, don't judge me, bro. So, let's just take a look at what the world's, a quick summary of what the world thinks of and what it considers when it, when it um, t- thinks about the idea of judgment. And why does the world reject the concept of judgment? Well, first of all, the first thing, the first reason that any of us reject the concept of judgment is because of rebellion. We are rebels against God. Now, in Star Wars, the rebels are the good guys, right? That's a cultural thing. But when we are a rebel against God, that's not the good, we're not the good guys. Our rebellion it gives us an innate desire to re- reject authority. We hate the idea of people telling us what to do. I really hate the idea of telling, people telling me what to do. And I have to order my heart anew every day to be bowed before God, to be uh, in union and submission with, with Shirley and the brothers in this church and other people, my, family, my church members here and the people around me. Rebellion is a very natural instinct for us because of our sin. Another reason that the world rejects the concept of judgment is relativism, differing ethical standards. What's right for me is not right for you and vice versa. That's an, almost an iron law. It's like, I can't impose my values on you. And I use the word ethical as opposed to moral purposely because there's a difference between ethics. You can, cre- you can create ethics to do anything you want, to justify anything you want. Morality is a different question, though. Morality is measured against an outside standard. And as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, what do we measure our morality against? God, the Bible, Jesus. These are good, easy Sunday school answers. We measure our morality against what God says. And that our, His morality becomes our ethics. Other people can have other ethics. They can even be true to their ethics, but if their ethics don't match God's morality, they're off. And we've all been there, and we all do that. And it ought to create a sense of sympathy and empathy for the people that we interact with to know that we do the same exact thing. Another reason that people reject the concept of judgment is, let's be honest, people have had bad experiences with misapplied judgment. People in authority have done bad things, whether it's spiritual authority, relational authority, 
civil authority, you name it. People have done bad things in the name of judgment and pronouncing laws. And so people naturally, they, they don't like that. Naturally, we don't like that. We need to be honest about that. One thing that's encouraging for me, though, is in, uh, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, it says, The Lord reigns forever, executing judgment from His throne. He will judge the world with justice and rule the nations with fairness. Justice and fairness. Am I perfectly just? When I make a ruling or I make an evaluation of something? No. Are you perfectly fair when you make an evaluation of something? Do you have all the information you'll ever need to make a perfectly fair assessment of what's going on? You do not. But I am so encouraged, super encouraged, to know that there is one who's on the throne. He, ha- he executes perfect justice and he rules the nation with fairness. That's who we know. That's who we want to share with the people around us in our life. So next, so we have, these are some of the reasons people reject judgment. So, and what are some of the limitations of the secular attitude towards judgment? So they reject it, and they're, they're limited by it. Um, naturally, they're limited by their attitude towards judgment. One of the things is sin warps our judgment Like I said before, not only do we not have all the information we need to make right judgments, sin bends us, sin damages us, sin kills us and separates us from God. So because of sin, I am flawed and unable to make accurate judgments. And so are you, and so are your neighbors, and so is your extended family, and so is the entire world, no matter how strongly worded their tweets are. Whether they use all caps in their emails or not, we are flawed and bent and damaged, and we are not capable of making these judgments apart from Him. Another passage in Psalm to share with you, Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I've kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. This is an example of how things get bent. Who's talking here? God is talking. God is talking to me. He's talking to you. He's talking to someone that presumes that God is not listening. These things I've done and kept silent. These things you've done and I kept silent. God says, I kept silent when you sinned. And because I kept silent, you thought I agreed with you. Another version, another, another translation says, you thought I approved of this. So we deceive ourselves. So no matter how strongly we feel, we can be, we can be deceived. God says, he, does, he is paying attention. He says, I will reprove you, and I will state the case in order before your eyes. He has the perfect perspective that we need to be mindful of. Next thing is, another reason, another limitation of, of the world's standard of judgment is that there, we, are, we can be blind. The world can be blind to what's at stake. So if you speed, what happens? And you get caught. You get a ticket. That's a consequence most of us can live with, or at least we think we can. So, but what the world is missing in its evaluation of the consequences are the eternal consequences of sin. Sin separates us from God, and the consequence, what's at stake, is eternity and our soul. I mean, not to mention the fact that we are damaged, and, we are, and sin hurts us, and it hurts the people around us. But it's an eternal perspective that the world very often explicitly rejects. There is no God. There is no eternity. There's nothing else besides this. 
Scripture also says the fool says in his heart there is no God. We, the, the, if, you, if you remove from the equation the possibility of eternity in your soul, your moral framework is damaged. And your ethical framework is going to be off kilter. So the world is blind to what's really at stake. Still, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of my blindness, in spite of the rebellion and blindness of the world, there's a deep-set desire for justice and righteousness. And righteousness. Even in our culture, when it gets some things wrong, there's an echo of truth that we would do well to understand and empathize with and engage. There's a quote I'd like, I'd like to share with you from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, is this world perfect? Easy question, easy Sunday school answer. No, it's not perfect. Am I perfect? No. Are you perfect? No. Is the world around us perfect? No. But we desire perfection. We desire justice. We desire to see something. Where does that desire come from? Where does, what, are we, what are we measuring things against? There's something, C.S. Lewis put his finger on it, there's something that we sense and something that we want. Even when we're lost, there's something that we want. Oh, thank God, as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of God, the Lord God Almighty, we have His truth to show us what we've lost and how to order our hearts correctly. So grateful that He reveals to us not only our need, but His truth and His resources. So the question I want to I ask here, and, and this is how we want to engage our friends. And I call them our friends. They were not enemies. There's no one that should be our enemy. We, Jesus said, you return good for evil. You return blessings for curses. So we will engage our friends, and we will look for opportunities to, ha- to acknowledge what God is already doing in their lives. Is there an echo of God's heart? and the sentiment of do not judge. We've already talked about There's a supernatural desire we have for justice in our lives. Not only that, not only is there a desire for justice, you know what else there's a desire for? There's a desire for compassion. Please have mercy on me. Oh, when someone, when, when someone does something to you, especially if it's unintentional, and say, it's all right, forget about it. Oh, we're so relieved. We long for that compassion. That longing for compassion, the expectation that compassion might come, where does that come from? It, because it comes from the fact that God himself is amazingly compassionate God. The missing piece, the missing piece that, that, the, that the world often misses and that we often forget is that God will uphold both justice and compassion. He will uphold. That's his nature. That's who he is. He will uphold both at the same time. And that's what we need to learn to do ourselves when we are engaging with the people in our lives and engaging with our culture. We need to learn to imitate that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Eric Simpson said that John 3.17 is the most overshadowed verse in the Bible. I thought that was a very insightful comment. Let's take a look at that verse and a couple others around it just to gain a little context and expand on that. And, and here we have 
LC, I mean John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Okay? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Who's speaking these words? Jesus. Man, I am asking you such softball questions this morning. Jesus is speaking these words. I don't have a red font here because otherwise it would, you couldn't read it. But these are the red letter promises of Jesus Christ. He is saying this. He understands the mission that the Father has sent him on. He's like pronouncing the good news. He's pronouncing his own suffering. And he is agreeing with what the, what the Father has done. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who believe, does not believe is judged already. The point is that God deeply loves you. He loves you. He loved me enough to send his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. And so, for what purpose? So you can live forever. You can live forever. Not only can we live forever with Him and joy and peace, but He also offers us hope and purpose in our life now. And part of that purpose is loving the people around us, engaging the people around us, even suffering and sacrificing on behalf of the people around us so we can share this good news with them. These are life-changing verses worthy of your meditation. If you read past them, if you scan past them, super easy to read past these. Some of them, one of the most famous passages in, script, in Scripture. Think about this. Jesus is announcing good news from his own lips to you and to me. So the compassionate judge. With that foundation laid, with a little bit of prep work as we try to engage and prepare our hearts to engage the culture with an understanding of who Jesus is and what his purpose is of coming to earth, let's read the passage that we have this morning. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you a moment to flip open in your Bible if you'd like. You want to boot up your phone and push the buttons, push all the buttons. Turn to John chapter 8 with me if you don't mind. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and he taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? You know, if I was my, I can channel my son Stephen for a minute because he likes to use these voices, right? Voice acting. He's like, hmm, back up a second, would you please? One verse back. Go back to verse 5, please. Hmm, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? I think that's probably the voice and the tone that they would have offered. Teacher. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down wrote in the dust with his finger. Next. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, all right, all right, 
But let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again. Woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Sometimes it's, it's smart just to keep your answers really simple. No, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So with our understanding of what Jesus do, does and how he acts and who God is and what his nature is, let's take a look at this passage. How did Jesus judge? And to be, and to be true, he judged this woman. He didn't just turn her loose. But here's some things I notice about his interaction with her. With her... With this woman, he was very personal and very warm. Are you personal and warm with the people around you, even though the, those who might disagree with you? You create a personable and warm atmosphere, and you're going to solicit that back. Look for opportunities to be personable and warm, especially with those who you may disagree with. Jesus, he didn't excuse her or condemn her, but you know what he did? He offered her a path forward out of her sin and out of her misery, and out of her terror. Can you imagine the terror she must have felt like? Because it wasn't a theoretical concept that she could be stoned in the public square. Do you notice the similarities between how Jesus interacted with this woman and, say, the woman at the well that we, that we heard about a couple of weeks ago? Eric said, Jesus offered the woman at the well buckets of grace. Jesus is offering this woman buckets of grace. Think about it for a moment. The woman at the well, she was alone in the middle of the day because she was rejected. But Jesus was with her there. This woman, she was in the middle of a crowd. It says, Jesus, one of the verses we just read says, Jesus was in the middle of the crowd with this woman. She was alone in the middle of a crowd. But Jesus was with both of them. You can be alone in the middle of the crowd as easily as you can be alone by yourself out on the sun-baked um, hilltop. I just want to emphasize how Jesus interacted with this woman. And not only her, but others as well, men and women. He cared for men and women who were vulnerable and wounded. They might have been sick. They might have been repented. They might have been repenting. They might have been rejected. They might have been desperate. He cared for them. He slowed down. He listened to them. Brothers and sisters, we ought to do the same exact thing. Slow down. Be warm. Be personable. Care for the people around you. So contrast time. How did Jesus respond to the religious leaders? Well, he was formal and cool by contrast. He was personal and warm with the woman. He was formal and cool with these religious leaders. In fact, you might have even said he was rude. So they came and they were like asking him these questions and attacking him. And, and he's like... He's, he stooped down and started drawing in the dust. And some people are interested in wondering what he drew about. I'm like more interested in the fact that it's like they walked up to him and wanted to talk to him, and he just like bent down and he wouldn't even give them eye contact. What if your friend came up to you and said, Hey, what's going on today? You know, what's that, what's that thing when you shake someone's hand, you kind of do this instead? You just pass your hand by your head. Or you're like, if someone came and said, What's going on? Or, Hey, I need to talk to you about something important. And you're like, oh, Well, whatever. And you start tying your shoe. 
wow, what kind of reaction was that? What kind of response to that was Jesus had to the Pharisees? But they kept hammering him. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? So he was bending down. He was scratching in the dirt. And then he stood up and said, all right, all right. You want to go? Let's go. Those of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. So he stooped down and ignored them when they're being jerks. And then he stood up, and with one single statement, he did several things. One, he exposed their hypocrisy. Two, he exerted his authority. Three, he showed them the right path forward. They didn't get it. I mean, they, they weren't idiots. They at least left and didn't do something stupid. But that one statement, that one simple statement, disarmed the entire circumstance. Do our interactions with people disarm conflict or does it inflame conflict? Oh man, I have to ask myself that. Do I inflame conflict or do I disarm conflict? Do I seek and enable restoration or do I inflame separation? As a breakout time exercise, if, you ha- if you're going to be, I hope you will stick around after the message today and, and participate in the breakout rooms. Here's some homework for you guys, either in the breakout rooms or later this week. Read Matthew 23 because this was pretty mild sauce in terms of Jesus interacting with the religious authorities. Read Matthew 23, which is Jesus castigating the Pharisees at the end of his earthly life and reading off to them the seven woes. So my, my question, a suggestion for you in your breakout time is read Matthew 23 together maybe and then compare why did Jesus act differently towards the leaders and the woman? What was, what was, what was animating that? What inspired him to do something different between them? So, as we conclude here, I want to just wrap up. We've looked at some of the cultural attitudes towards judgment. We've looked at Jesus' actions. And so now we need to kind of bring it home. We need to talk about what do we do? What shall we do? What shall I do? Well, first of all, the first thing you need to do is you need to receive forgiveness for yourself. He loves you. He died for you. He says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be judged. But if you don't believe, your unbelief in you, by extension, will be judged. He loves you. Confess your sins to him. Come to him with humility and peace. It's just between you and him. Ask for forgiveness. He welcomes you with open arms. He, he made the effort to send his son to die on the cross for your sins. If this is something you've done in the past, then I'd say pause and give thanks for what he's done for you. Recognize the immense gift anew. If this is something you haven't done before, if you haven't paused and say, God, you are holy, you are righteous, you are enthroned, you have the right to judge me. But I also recognize you don't want to judge me and you don't want that so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. Thank you. Just say thank you, Lord. I believe. Next, what we shall do is we should imitate Christ. Jesus knew exactly what to say, and he had the right actions, whether it was stooping in the dirt or one word, one sentence answer that, that, it, that uh, disarmed a difficult situation. It's a little more difficult for us, and it takes a little more intentionality. So I'm going to ask you, I'm calling you, I'm insisting, in fact, that you accept the assignment of doing the hard work of judging correctly. And that means 
you need to uphold righteousness and you need to exercise compassion. Now, condemning is it's out. You don't have the authority of the standing to condemn anybody. But you have the responsibility, I have the responsibility to uphold righteousness, to agree with what God says, and to exercise compassion at the same time. This is how you engage the culture. Well, it's A, it's, a, it's how you order your own heart and gain healing in your own heart when you learn to understand that God has justice and compassion towards you. But this is how you fruitfully engage a culture that may be hostile towards this idea. And it's going to cost you something. No one's going to thank you when you come and you say, I agree with God. This is what God says, I agree with it. They're not going to thank you necessarily. But you have the assignment to make whatever sacrifices are necessary, to to endure whatever suffering is necessary, to fairly and accurately represent God to these people. And it's going to cost you something. Sometimes it'll be easy, and sometimes people will be super grateful. Sometimes they're not going to be grateful. Sometimes they're not going to thank you. You still have the mission to represent God correctly. You still have the mission to trust Him, and you still have the mission to judge correctly in a fallen world. Let's pray. God, You are holy and righteous. I confess it, even though I don't understand it. You reign forever. I can't comprehend it. You are glorious. My mind cannot contain You. I am so, and yet, You still reveal Yourself, and You still call me to worship, and You still say, David, I love You. David, look at me. So, Lord, I say, I look at you, and I long to understand you. I long to understand your righteousness. I long to enjoy and drink in your compassion. And I long not only to drink it in, because I desperately need it, Lord. Each one of us desperately needs it, Lord. But the world around us desperately needs this. God, equip me. Equip us to uphold righteousness. Equip us to exercise compassion. Equip us to engage with our friends and family and loved ones and even those who don't love us. And and I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.